Welcome to Trailblazing Techs, and today we have Matthew Wilson, varsity basketball coach and program head at the John Cooper School, and so welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm actually glad you came on again. So we originally had recorded an episode, uh, but a lot has changed in, in the world that we live in, and so we have decided to 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 re-record and still address um, kind of you as a basketball player in your career and, and coaching, um, but also address just the current racial and social climate that we are currently living in. And so Trailblazing Text has kind of pivoted a little bit, still talking about career, but also talking about some of the important uh, issues at hand. So before we get to some of the really pressing issues, I do want to ask you, you know, what does it mean to you to be the coach at John Cooper uh, where you graduated from back in 2006? Um, it's incredible. It's, uh, it's highly personal um, being back here at Cooper. It's home for me. I was a student there since I was in seventh grade. And so um, when I had the opportunity to come back, it was one that I didn't want to pass up. Um, and I take a lot of pride and joy in being at Cooper. Um, I think, one, the school has done incredible things for me in, in my development. Um, and two, it's awesome to see how much um, the, the Cooper community has invested in the students. The campus looks totally different. Um, and so it's really cool to be a part of that. Yeah, I, I joke. I know they built that uh, math and science building. I think it's called mm -hmm. the rock something. Mm -hmm. And I joked with my parents. I was like, maybe I'd be good at math and science. <laughs> what I was putting down. But anyway, I, I'll just say as someone, we've known each other for a long time. When mm -hmm. I heard that you were getting the job, I, I was very excited. Quite frankly, I didn't know you were considering it. So I was just surprised, but I thought you were a great person to run the program. You went through the school, you kind of know the um, academic rigor and the landscape from that standpoint, but also how to be part of a very successful basketball team. So with that, though, we're facing some issues with COVID-19. You're down in Texas, so we're seeing a flare up in cases as well. And so as a coach, how are you coaching your team at this time, especially when kids' situations may vary? They might not mm -hmm. have a hoop in their yard or something. So how are you addressing this during such a crazy time? Um, you know, it, it's a fantastic question. Kind of, we're, we're not doing a ton right now. Yeah. Um, with the recent flare-ups, um, we, had, we had started doing on-campus workouts um, that were outside. They were essentially body weight workouts um, that were strength and conditioning related. Um, we've ceased that and taken a break for, for the next couple of weeks um, just to see what happens with the numbers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're still not um, getting access to the gym yet. Um, and so essentially our, our kids are kind of doing things on their own right now. And um, but I think the beautiful thing about Cooper is we've got a lot of kids that play a lot of different sports. And so they're kind of getting pulled in different directions. And so mm -hmm. for us, the most important thing is that our guys are staying in shape. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, a lot of our guys have hoops at home. And so they're able to get some shots up. Um, nice. But it, it is difficult. You know, like you said, everybody's got some different resources. And the most important thing at this point is that everybody stays safe. Sure. Um, and especially in Texas, a lot of, of the young people are, are becoming carriers um, because they haven't distanced themselves as, as much as maybe older people that have been more conscious have um, because their symptoms aren't as bad. And sure. so... Um, I think at this point, the most important thing is that everybody stays safe. Sure. And, and so since your, I guess, basketball workload isn't as heavy, you have mm -hmm. recently started a podcast as well. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to share the title of it and just kind of the, the, the premise of it, because I know you have had to shift a little bit mm -hmm. with your podcast as well. Yeah, and we, we've just gotten off the ground. Um, we're two episodes in right now. It's called the Extra Pass Podcast. Um, essentially, what we'd like to talk about is um, – different people in different businesses, but going from good to great. And um, obviously basketball is important to me. So I like tying in basketball, whether it's a former player or somebody that's related to a basketball field. Um, but essentially, you know, we've talked to a couple guys that are in the NBA. Um, we've talked to uh, different coaches um, and some former players from Cooper. Um, yeah. But essentially we're talking about what traits are important um, and can help determine success in a professional setting. And so I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, but like you mentioned, we too have pivoted a little bit and we've re-recorded a couple of episodes and uh, addressed kind of the current climate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've definitely seen some of the content you've been putting out. I'm excited to hear your new episodes that, that you have uh, coming out, but 
I did want to say like one of the great things that I like about your podcast is kind of connecting your players Mm -hmm. to your resources or alumni as well, because most people don't play at the next level. And most people definitely don't play at a professional level. You learn these skills and you play in school, but they translate into something greater. And so um, I did play in college. I played division Mm -hmm. three and that was something that stood out on my resume in every interview I go into to this day, it comes up because people know that, teamwork and Mm -hmm. um, being able to manage your time and, you know, dedicate yourself to something are traits that people want in their workers and and they can, uh, you know, be skills or traits that you need no matter what your profession is and and what you decide to do after. So I think connecting the stories of, you know, you might be in high school playing basketball right now, but you're going to go to college and you're going to get a job and what you learned Mm -hmm. here is applicable, you know, in the real world. So I will say that, you know, you've had a heck of a basketball career and journey as well. Um, you played both division three and division one, and you've mm-hmm. coached pretty much at every level, right? Besides, Almost. Maybe, yeah, besides division three. Yes. Okay. So one couple of points I wanted to talk about is you played division three ball at NYU and then you played D one ball at American. What was kind of the biggest difference between playing division three mm-hmm. um, and playing division one? Because I know as a D- former D three player, it's definitely a grind. You don't get as much mm-hmm. of the glamor if you will. Um, but the competition is still absolutely there. It's just a different environment. Absolutely. And um, you know, the funny thing is uh we had great players at American. I've actually got a couple teammates from NYU that are still playing professionally. And so, like you said, the level of competition at all levels in college is very, very high. Um, the biggest difference that I found is the, the level of commitment in terms of staffing and funding. Um, those programs, they, they, they run like clockwork. They're, it's yeah. incredible. Um, but just the number of people in those departments, the number of people behind the scenes that make things happen, um, it, it's really, truly incredible. And, and the, the amount of services available to the student athletes um, at, the, at the bigger schools and, you know, relative Americans, it's quite small compared to other D1s, um, but still from NYU to American, it was noticeable. Yep. And when you were at um, American, you guys did get to go to the uh, NCAA tournament, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, twice. It was awesome. Yeah. That's, I, I just remember, because you're the only person I know that played I think at a D1 level, but anyway, I just, I remember watching NCAA and, you know, rooting. So I was like, I know him. And I feel (laughs) like you guys played Tennessee in the tournament one year. That's right. Yeah. uh, 2008, it was Tennessee. And then 2009, it was Villanova. And the Tennessee game was kind of close if I remember correctly, right? They they were both close. Tennessee was close till the end and they kind of put a run on us. Um, And then Villanova, gosh, we we had that game. We were 14 with like 10 to go and, (laughs) We were playing Villanova in oh, play, yeah. of course, and um, they, they ended up storming back. Um, and, I mean, hats off to them. They ended up in the Final Four, but yeah. and <laughs> we can get a couple <laughs> of those minutes back. We would like to. Yeah, for sure. But great memories nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after, after playing in college and after graduating from American, I know you kind of found yourself in this position of kind of what do I do next? So how did you land in coaching? Because I know it wasn't the original – kind of career path it wasn't and you know the funny thing is I, I I'd coached all throughout high school I coached you know younger uh, youth teams and I loved it um, you know after graduating from American I didn't have a career to where I could go professionally like I wanted to mm-hmm. um, and so I thought you know what if I can't play I'm just gonna go make as much money as fast as I can and so I decided to get an MBA from Rice I was gonna go into uh, oil and gas investing and it just wasn't for me sure. um, you know and I, I just didn't love it. Um, and at the, at the same time, while I was getting my MBA, um, one of my friends had the head job on the girl's side at Episcopal High School, um, Lauren Mitchell, and she was yeah, actually yeah. a Cooper grad as well. And so she asked me if I'd like to help out with their team, and I loved it. Gosh, I, I mean, I was stealing time away from my co- cohorts at Rice um, to work with their team. And, uh, you know, I was, it opened a couple doors for me, and it, yeah. it kind of redirected my path. I loved it. I was happy. And I knew from that moment on, this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And Lauren Mitchell, so blast from the past. So she was, she graduated before I ever got to high school, but she mm-hmm. helped with my team, either my sophomore or junior year. And I, I thought she was a great coach and she was a great addition because she played, did you play at tech? 
Yeah, she did. Yeah, so just having kind of that influence of, of you know, playing some pretty major uh, basketball was, was great. And she's a great person in general, so I'm glad she thought of you uh, so you can land in this kind of position that you are now. So, you know, you got, you got the coaching bug, and you then became a coach assistant, grad assistant at Baylor? That's right, yeah. Okay, so, so you went to Baylor, and then what are the other schools that you coached at? Um, so GA at Baylor for two years, and then I went to Eastern New Mexico University, which is Division Two. It's in one of the best leagues in the country on the Lone Star Conference, and it was, uh, it was an eye-opening experience for the, yeah. the collegiate ranks. Um, I, I didn't understand how talented um, Division Two level was. It's incredible. Yeah. There's That conference in particular is, is as talented as some – maybe mid-major plus type conferences. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was great. Um, I think a lot of coaches when they're young really enjoy being at the lower levels, um, division two junior college, um, because you get to have your hands on a lot of things. The staffs yeah. are a lot smaller. And so your responsibilities are, you know, maybe three or fourfold what they would be at the division one level as a staffer. Yep. Um, and so you get to gain experience very, very quickly. Um, so it, it is difficult, it's trying. Um, but I had a blast. And so it was Eastern New Mexico and then yep. Kilgore College, which is a junior college for three Got it. years. Got it. Um, and here I am. Nice, nice. And so now that you are, you know, the, the head basketball coach uh, for high school team at, at Cooper, you know, we've, we've seen the world shift a lot in the last month. Take the pandemic out of it, right? We've, with the, the recent killing of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and we're just seeing more and more Mm-hmm. brought about you know how as a coach do you kind of go from here how do you address this a with your team mm-hmm. but b you know as an as a black man in america what does this mean to you what is this last month meant to you and and what i guess what have you been doing and what would you like to see and i guess let's have this conversation yeah um i'm gonna start with uh just kind of how i felt um yeah. the last month um you know, it's really been an emotional roller coaster. Um, I think one of the things that goes unsaid often is every time this happens where you see it on, you know, you see it on film. Um, and, and unfortunately, this happens far more often, but the only ones that gain national attention are the ones that are recorded. Yeah. Um, but when you see it on film, it, it there is trauma. Um, you see yourself in every one of these situations. You see a loved one. You see, you know, they always have the mother speak at a podium and you know, kind of talk through their grief and you see your mother going through that same process. Yeah. And so there is a grieving process that you go through every single time that that happens. And that definitely, definitely occurred for me. Um, you know, I feel like I'm in a position um, because of where I grew up. Um, the majority of the people I grew up with are white middle class. Um, that's what the Woodlands is. Um, you know, I had great experiences growing up, um, but there were experiences that I had growing up that were not typical of, of the majority of people in the woodlands because I was black. Right. Um, and so I, for me, I think it's kind of been, I felt a responsibility to educate people on the lived experience because a lot of people are unaware yeah. of, you know, how things can be different even in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from experiences like being followed in the mall everywhere or, um, you know, from pretty much from the time you hit puberty, it's a kind of constant awareness at least that somebody may see you as a threat or somebody may see you as a criminal just by your presence. Um, And, you know, it seems, I think to a lot of people that even in nice places that that shouldn't be or couldn't be, um, but it is, and it's very prevalent. And so Mm -hmm. um, I've taken, you know, to uh, one of the avenues by which I've I've kind of communicated that is through Facebook. um, And I've kind of written about some of my personal stories um, things that I've gone through. Um, and I, I think it's very important to understand and acknowledge that the experiences that I've experienced really pale in comparison to a lot of other um, Black people because of where I've grown up. I've, I've mm-hmm. been fortunate. You know, I've, I've not been um, in a situation where I've felt, um, you know, attacked or, or personally harassed by police. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a lot of friends that I played basketball with that had that on a regular basis where right. you know, they felt like they were stopped and frisked just walking home from school. Um, and so I, I do believe that I've got a voice, um, but I also don't want my voice to be the only voice because sure. it, it's not the only experience. 
And so um, for me, it's kind of been an emotional roller coaster. I think a lot of people of color kind of pack things in. Um, and so like that, the story that I shared, I shared a story about um, being called the N-word for the first time. I was eight years old. Um, I'd never told that to anybody besides my immediate family and my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, um, it, it's a strange kind of feeling because you, on the one hand, you feel a responsibility to share and, and help people become aware of the lives that, or the world that they live in. Um, but on the other hand, you feel very exposed and very vulnerable. Yeah. And so yeah. it's kind of, it's, it's weird. Um, but you also feel like there's this moment right now where people are listening, um, where the last 20 years, you, it didn't feel that way. Um, yeah. And, and I had an episode the other week with a gentleman named Daryl Blackburn and, and mm-hmm. we kind of had this very similar conversation about, you know, now people are listening. It, it I don't want to say better late than never because that oversimplifies it, but people are listening now. And, um, and so I think when someone like you or people in general, when they, they share such vulnerable stories, that's something like I've known you since I was 14 mm-hmm. and that was something I never, never knew, but it also I don't know why it would ever come up necessarily in conversation, but it was something that I did not know about you. When I read the story, like it, it, it was upsetting because you're just kind of like, why would people do that? What's, what's the point of it also? Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I hear those stories and people being vulnerable, I think we all kind of, and when I say we all, the listeners, um, emotionally appeal to it because even though it hasn't happened to me, mm-hmm. I know you, I know you as a person, I see you as a person. And so I feel for you. Now that doesn't mean I know what it's like to, to go through something like that, but I think, I think that's what people are trying to learn how to do is empathize, right? I might have not gone through it, but you have, and many other people have as well. And also to make the point that just because it hasn't happened to me or I haven't seen it, mm-hmm. doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Because like you said, like where we're from, it's a pretty safe area. I mean, that's when I say safe you don't hear about crazy crimes or even crazy racial uh, issues. Now that's not to say that they don't happen, but not none, like not as compared to other communities right. that we have. Right. And so I think a lot of our eyes are being open, mine included, where I find myself asking, cause we hear about cr- like outlandish and egregious things like lynchings and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of find myself being like, where do, who are these people? Where do they exist? And so, yeah, you have the extremely racist people that, you know, are horrible, but then there's also this kind of middle ground of racism where it's kind of subliminal or unintentional or bias. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that is one of the biggest issues is it's not necessarily just, you know, calling you the N word. I didn't hire him. I didn't promote him. Mm -hmm. I didn't help him because Mm -hmm. of this bias that I may have, or it might be maliciously being like, I don't like him because he, the color of his skin. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're, we're fighting off all these different types of racism. Um, And I think a lot of people like myself are realizing there's a lot more that goes on than any of us had ever known. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And you have a voice and other people have a voice because you said you're just that Daryl voice, other people had on our other voices as well. It paints a pretty clear picture that everyone has their own voices and stories. But the common theme is that you guys have all faced a lot of racial um, injustices or profiling or just racism in general. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just didn't really know that they really were going on. And it's not to say that people didn't believe it, but it's in the, it's, you know, it's out there now. Like people Mm -hmm. are aware and people are listening. Yeah. And so um, for me, I I think what's important is, you know, I I think some people have have misunderstood what, what black people are trying to say right now. We're not, we're not looking necessarily for apologies. We're not looking for people to say, oh, you know, man, slavery was bad, this and that. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't believe in that. Um, what we're looking for is, is for people that are allies to understand that a lot of the systems that are still in place um, were created by people with racist intentions. Sure. And so, it, you, you know, 
you may be a person in power, you may not be racist, you may not believe in that, but you still may preside over a system that was designed to hold people back. And I, I think that's one of the most important things, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the messaging, is that a lot of systems in place um, put people at a disadvantage, and it's it, it still happens to this day. Um, and so I, I think that's really important, and I think, um, kind of say pull this back into basketball um you know i think i'm in a really unique position um because the community at cooper is diverse um but um the majority of our team this year was was white and i think that um we can we can create some allies and i think for me that's that's kind of one of the responsibilities to one educate communicate um and, and produce leaders that care about everybody, um, that care about um, equality and care about opportunities for everybody. Um, because I, I think the, the greatest thing about Cooper is the success of all of the alums. Yeah. Cooper does a fantastic job. I mean, just turning and turning and turning out high level leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know that, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the students I'm coaching right now are going to be titans of industry, whichever, whichever industry they choose. And I hope that they can be champions um, for, for good. And yeah. so that's kind of my cause is um, to educate, um, you know, and, and when we talk about leadership, also recognize that leaders need to give a voice to the unheard. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about sports in general, whether we're mm -hmm. talking about basketball or not, is it brings together people of all different races, backgrounds, creeds, you know, and the list goes on and mm -hmm. you're kind of playing for something, a common goal and it's to win. Um, and, and that's why we like sports so much. And I think at this time, you know, you hear kind of the debate of, should we be starting sports up again because mm -hmm. of COVID, but also some athletes are putting their foot down and saying, you know, there's, there's something greater going on, which I totally agree. But I think as the public, why we like sports is one, it's an escape, but two, I think we all appreciate that it's different types of people coming together, playing on a team. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's why I like sports. You know, when people are just like sports, man, like, cause you see beautiful moments of humility, humanity, emotionally, mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, during a time like this, like, yeah, during COVID, I was like, okay, I wish I could watch sports just because I don't have any entertainment. But now I've kind of found myself being like, I want sports so we can all as a nation just see people together. Because mm -hmm. we don't, we're not seeing that right now because of one, we're all huddled at home, right? And we're not going to the office or we're not going out and seeing people. Um, and also there's, there's like no, nothing on TV outside of, you know, protests and COVID and, and we just keep seeing divisiveness in general, mm -hmm. right? We're seeing it with COVID. We're seeing it with uh, the protests. And so we're not seeing anything like of us coming together. And so going back to your message of what the black community is trying to do, you know, I think sometimes the message gets hijacked and mm -hmm. it gets hijacked by a small group of people that make the most noise. And like you said, you know, you're not looking for, you're looking for allies and for people to understand because I, me personally, Brittany Metcalf, I cannot fix what happened, you know, before the Civil War. But mm -hmm. I can understand it. I can listen to you. I can understand where your pain is coming from or where your frustrations are coming from. And I can kind of take it from there and lead by example or make changes. And so I think right now, going back to like the kids that you're coaching, I think we're going to see a massive transition in the next I don't know, let's just say 10 years, depending on when they graduate and stuff, where we're going to have kids that are molded and understand, you know, racism is real, racism is wrong, but also to be the advocate for equality and caring for people as the individual who cares if they're black or white or mm -hmm. gay or straight or, you know, any other box that we like to try and put people in. And so even though right now we're coming to like a giant clash, I am hopeful for the future, but I think these are conversations that we need to have. And so on my other episode with Daryl, I personally think as Americans, when we elected Obama, we just felt cool. Like we conquered racism. It's, we have a black guy in office and like, can't be that bad. And, and in reality, racism has been very bad. 
-hmm. and we're watching it just kind of, I think, bubble to the surface, which it should, right? And I think, you know, as a white American, I probably was victim of that overstatement too. Like there's a black man in office, you know, we, we've done it, we've conquered it, and clearly we haven't. And I don't know if we'll ever get rid of it, but for the most part, you know, as a majority, we can do the right thing and, and mm-hmm. silence, you know, the crazy racist people that will continue to be that way. Hopefully. Right, right. And I think um, I, I felt like there's been a lot of progress. I've, I've gotten questions from people, um, that, you know, that um, haven't really been interested or haven't really been aware. Um, and so I think the amount of curiosity, I think the amount of research going on right now, um, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, one of the biggest hindrances to progress is the fact that we don't teach, our, you know, real yeah. history in school. Um, we don't teach um, what slavery really was. We don't teach how and why laws came to be in the United States. Um, and so I think there's a lot of research going on right now, personally. Um, you know, and that's something that I have done, been accustomed to doing. I think a lot of Black Americans are accustomed to because we're not taught our own history that much in school. That's fair. And so, um, I, but what I'm seeing is there's a enthusiasm about learning from a lot of different people. And I think that knowledge is what's going to keep this thing rolling. So, yeah, I, I would agree. And, and, you know, I heard someone say this and it's very obvious, but for some reason it just really clicked where it's black history is American history, right? Mm -hmm. We don't need to just wait till February to address it. And so there's so many, you know, historically, you know, historical black leaders, you know, dating back to the revolutionary war and and black people fighting for this country that didn't even have the same rights as someone like me, like that's bananas. Like think Mm -hmm. about fighting in a war, giving, possibly losing your life for a country that at that time didn't recognize you as a whole person or the same, um, same as a white person, but still fighting for this country. And so to me, that's so powerful. It's sad, but it's very powerful to show that I think the potential we have as a country, we are a great country. We have just more potential, I think, than what we're accomplishing right now as, as a society in general. And going back to teaching, you know, black history in, in, in our curriculum, you know, I think education needs a complete overhaul in general, but, you know, when it comes to who we are as a nation and our history, there's more to it than just, you know, the Civil War, and then we had Jim Crow, and then we had the, you know, Civil Rights Movement, and there was a guy named Abraham Lincoln, like, uh, there's a lot more than that, and so I've even found myself learning about things that I never thought I would ever learn about, some things that I found myself wondering why I didn't learn about it, Mm -hmm. Granted, in school, there's only so much time, but at the same time, there's very important things as well. So I think we're going to start seeing that in the curriculum. And I hope, I hope that we see it in the curriculum. And, you know, I've been very thankful that people have recommended books or just resources. And I do like history in general. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting where it's just like, oh, this is cool. This is different. And, you know, it's not even to me, yes, it's Black Lives Matter. And right now we're talking about kind of the racial injustices to Black people, but also hearing stories from other people of color, whether it's Hispanic Mm -hmm. people, Asian Mm -hmm. people, um, Indian people, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people have their own stories. And a lot of people will admit that even though their stories are tough, it doesn't compare to most people in in the Black community. And so I think that speaks to the severity of the racism and the injustices that people face in this country, especially the black community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really why it's resonated all over the world. You know, there's been protests in Europe and protests in Asia and South America. And, um, you know, I think it resonates because there are people that are disparaged all over the world. Yeah. And America, the, the promise of the United States of America is this melting pot. It's the promise of equality for all. And I think when people from around the world see that that's not true for everybody, it, it's like, man, if it's not true in the United States, it's, it's where, really because yeah. yeah, because that was kind of the beacon of hope. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the reasons why um, George Floyd's death in particular has really resonated with people around the world. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, I won't lie at first when I started to see the protests around the world, I kind of was like, okay, but why, right? What does the United States have to do with what you do in London or what you do in South America, right? I kind of was like, wouldn't you protest the wrongdoings of your own country or your own citizens? 
But then it kind of dawned on me where it was like, well, America is kind of this example. The United States of America is this example. Like you said, the melting pot, equality for all, um, and hope, right? A lot of people want to come to this country because it is a great country. And like I said, we have a long way to go, but people look at us and they're like, that's the example. That's what we should be. And if America is dealing, or the United States of America is dealing with these issues, then chances are in a lot of other places, it's a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And so I think we are on the national stage as well to really step it up and just show that we're listening. We do have a past. We can't do anything about that past. It has happened. But what we can do from here is make it right, make it better, listen to people and truly have equality. And I think we're having those hard conversations because when I talk about equality too, it's usually from the perspective of a woman, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't deal with the same issues that you do, but being a woman in the workforce has its issues. And so I have those conversations and that's like my perspective. But now, you know, I've been opened up to so many other things that I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. And so that's the power of these conversations. And I think sometimes people feel bad where they're like, I didn't know that. And that's okay. That's why we have these conversations. We can't all know everything and have the same experiences and walk the same life. That's, that's the beauty of this country is we're all different. So you share an experience. I learned something new. I didn't know this, or, mm -hmm. you know, I talked to a friend. And so I think that's the importance of talking to people and also learning, but not being defensive, right? If you tell me how you feel, I can't disagree with that. Right. It is how you mm -hmm. feel. Mm -hmm. So understand but at the same time it is a justified emotion and emotions are subjective so if you're upset or you feel attacked or threatened i can't sit there and be like well that's dumb because mm -hmm. that's how you feel and so mm -hmm. i think we need to take it back a little bit and just respect people's emotions as well no matter how ridiculous you may or may not feel that they are mm -hmm. and i think having these conversations where they're honest and they're hard i won't lie i'm uncomfortable like mm -hmm. just saying black people as many times as i have or like black community like i feel uncomfortable just saying it that many times mm -hmm. and having these hard conversations but i'm thankful that there's people like you that are willing to have these conversations and not, uh, I don't know the right word, but not look down on me either is mm -hmm. like, oh, Brittany didn't know that. Like she doesn't care. It's not that. It's just, I might not know it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think it's important that you, the only way to have these conversations is to force yourself to be uncomfortable. They're not comfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not comfortable when, when I see a police car driving by. I'm not. Yeah. Um, and so like conversations about that aren't going to be comfortable because not everybody feels the same way. Yeah. Um, and that's just, that's the reality of life. But I, I think, um, I think bad cover, uncomfortable conversations are, are very positive right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it relates to the sports world again. Um, it's, it's why I love coaching, but we say all the time, you got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's the yeah. world. And so it's, it's no different from whether you're trying to increase a bench press to, um, trying to increase, you know, mental and, and, you know, spiritual growth or anything of the sort. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it benefits all of us to just know more about our history as, as a nation, right? And that includes Black history. And it, it, it betters us to understand why things might be the way they are, why maybe we didn't make the progress that we needed to. But like you said, we have made progress. So I'm definitely happy to hear that you feel progress has, be, has been made because I would agree, but it's really hard for me to say that and say that, you know, we have made progress just based on my observations. But one thing that kind of um, you mentioned that when a cop car passes you makes you feel uncomfortable. Meanwhile, me, I honestly don't think twice about it. I've been pulled over maybe twice in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think twice about it. And so the fact that I know people that, that their senses are heightened all of a sudden when they see a police car, kind of it breaks my heart because one, you shouldn't feel that way. But two, you know, I do know quite a few cops and, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, I can't imagine them ever doing what we saw happen to George Floyd, for example. Mm -hmm. And so another thing too, at least with the people I've talked about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is not a police hating movement, but it's holding people accountable, holding the police departments accountable because mm -hmm. they are the ones that are supposed to protect us in our communities. And if you need help and you're scared to call 911 because you don't know what is actually going to happen to you, 
that defeats the purpose of having a group of people protect us if you feel that you're already threatened, but the cops might actually bring more of a threat to the situation. Mm -hmm. So I think we're having really good conversations around what should be done from here from a reform standpoint. Because quite frankly, I think we ask a lot out of our police officers, right? Mm -hmm. To be mental health people, um, um, deal with also like just crime and, and very aggressive situations um help in schools like we're just asking them to do a lot and so yeah. you know i think we need to take a step back and well, and we're asking them to do things that they're unprepared for yeah um, you know I, I think me personally i think that the police force should be paid two or three times as much and i think that um they should be held to a standard um that meets that compensation level i, I think yeah. that their um the requirements to become an officer should be more strict i think that the training should be tighter and and much more um regimented. Um, I, I don't think that um, all of the military gear should be with police officers. Um, you know, it's, it's like preparing for a, a sports game. The games where you're prepared to be the, the roughest and the toughest are the days where, you know, you've got your, your knee pad, you know, your elbow pads and your, your mouth guard and you feel like you're, you're prepared for battle. Well, if you, if you put police officers, if you give them military training and you give them military gear, then in their minds, they're, they're already mentally prepped for war. Mm-hmm. And that's not what, that's not what this is. Um, yeah. And, and, and I was listening to, um, I like Joe Rogan because I mm-hmm. think he's just a normal dude and, and just tells you how he feels. Um, but he had a Navy, an ex Navy SEAL on his uh, podcast. Uh, oh, what's his name? It's slipping my mind right this second. But anyway, the Navy SEALs point was that we need to do more situational training with police officers because the moment you start having adrenaline and you start really getting scared, you know, it is do or die in your mind. Once that, once you reach that point of that adrenaline, adrenaline rush, which is a natural response because Mm -hmm. we are animals at the end of the day, he was saying that there needs to be much more situational type of training uh, to help with, you know, slowing down your adrenaline or adrenaline, um, really assessing the situation and knowing, you know, not the first instinct of do or die. Right. right. So that's what the seals are really good at and also de-escalating situations as well. And I know that's really easy for me to sit back and just say like, Oh yeah, let's add some training and de-escalate because I know how I am. I can fly off the rails in a matter of moments. Um, but I'm also not a police officer for a reason because mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I can't balance my emotions like that. But you know, there's so many great conversations going around about police reform. And I think, I think we will come out better because of it, but I will be honest. I, I I struggle with it just because the police officers I do know Mm -hmm. are great people. And they're the one, they're the first people right now saying, you know, what happened to Breonna Taylor, what happened to George Floyd are unacceptable. Like who does that, you know? And so I think having those voices as well, the people that wear the badge saying, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. Then we're all on the same side. And again, I think the narrative is being hijacked at times where I think most of us are on the same side of like, Mm -hmm. we don't want these rogue cops or these unjust killings and stuff like that. Like at the end of the day, a cop and a person of interest all want to go home at the end of the day. That's what they both want to do. And so if we can provide the resources and the tools and the training to do that, mm-hmm. it benefits all sides. If we want to call it an argument, an argument. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's hard. I don't have the answers. Um, I don't think any easy answers. Yeah. I, I do think that accountability is, is critical. I think um, one of the analogies I saw that I thought was fantastic, nurses on a, on a daily basis deal with unruly people. They deal with people that are drunk, they deal with people that are on drugs. Yeah. Um, and nurses don't kill anybody to gain control of them. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the reason is because they are, um, the lawsuits that they would face would be outlandish. And so um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a, a firm believer in the free market. I, I believe that if there were financial incentives for police officers to do what's right, then you wouldn't have so many willing to do what's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually an interesting argument. Yeah, the um, incentives. And like you said, like, I think people that serve the community like police officers, firefighters, like they should be paid more. I mean, at the end of the day, like they keep me safe, or that is the goal to keep me safe. And, you know, to, to your point, right, being held to 
higher standards based on, you know, higher compensation. Like you are seen as someone that is a highly compensated because of the work that you do. And so I think, I don't know if people would be willing to pay police officers more, but I'm with you on that. But I do think there needs to be kind of like some sort of, I don't want to say incentive because that makes it seem like people inherently don't want to do the right thing, but to kind of. Well, more, more or less a punishment for when they don't. For the, that's I, I think especially people in the black community, we see too many times where there is no punishment. That's why there are still calls over a hundred days later for um, Breonna Taylor you know, to have some justice. I think, I think her case um, is difficult um, because her case is, is kind of the, the, what you would, what most people would say is um, the purpose of the second amendment. Somebody breaks down your door and, and, and runs into your house unannounced. That is the, the whole sole purpose of having, a, uh, owning a gun. Um, same thing with, uh, oh goodness, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, Flando Castile. Well, you yeah, know, I mean, he was a concealed carry, yeah. a concealed carry gun owner, um, killed by police when the gun was was where it was supposed to be, um, and so I think when we see justice not served in those cases, it that's when it hurts, um, and I, I think in those cases, the police are protected from the law and they're also protected in civil court, and if right. they were protected in in both places. Um, I, I don't think that that would be the case. And I think, um, you know, I, there have been calls to, to remove qualified immunity. I think Colorado has made a push to do that. And their, their response from some of the officers is, is threatening to resign. Oh, well, yeah. Sorry, you skipped out. Yeah, you're right. Um, um, and it's and like, okay, resign. Please do. If, if, you, if you will only work under the circumstances or under the conditions that you can kill without being held accountable if you're wrong, then you shouldn't be serving. I agree with that sentiment. You know, j just the nature of the job, people that, like there's going to be situations, unfortunately, where people die, police officers die, mm -hmm. people of interest or um, mm -hmm. suspects. But again, that's why these investigations are supposed to happen to make sure, was this something that you did everything right and you truly were fighting for your life? Or mm -hmm. was it something where you sat on someone's neck for nine minutes? And right. so not to justify any type of death, but there's definitely wrong deaths. And going back to the to Second Amendment, I'm a big 2A like, supporter, um, especially in the last three months. Um, it has confirmed my beliefs in it, but it led to a very unfortunate situation with Breonna Taylor. But at the same time, the whole sting or whatever you want to call it was gross incompetence. Yeah. Like what the hell was going on? And yeah. I think everyone from the top down, from whoever created the whole plan to mm -hmm. everyone involved needs to either a face consequences whatever mm -hmm. that may be whether it's being fired whether it is j jail time something like there is no reason that you should mm -hmm. barge into someone's house and then people and of course um her boyfriend thinks his house is being broken into so shots mm -hmm. are fired which i would also do right. and then people standing outside are shooting outside of the house into the house like that is absurd like the fact that that was a reaction to me shows that there was a lack of training like right. that should well, not happen also the person they were trying to apprehend was already in jail yeah it, so it, why it, did that exactly you know, it's 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 un, unquestionably and and to me and not to say one death is less or more impactful but the brianna taylor thing to me is beyond egregious Mm -hmm. because there was so many points where that could have been stopped, mm -hmm. right? Like you said, mm -hmm. the, the suspect had been apprehended. There was no memo to the other group of like, let's, let's roll it back. Like, we don't need to do this. He's in jail. And then, you know, George Floyd also, I think the reason that it has sparked so many emotions is because there is a legit video of someone sitting on his neck for nine minutes and mm -hmm. we can, we're all sitting there and you just want, I haven't watched the whole video and I've said this every time that, I don't want to watch someone die. I can't watch someone die. Mm -hmm. No matter if it was my worst enemy. And, but still for seven minutes or six minutes, I can sit there and watch that this man is going to die all because the police officer was a coward. 
but also people didn't feel comfortable speaking up. And mm -hmm. I understand that I think two of the other police officers were like on their fourth day of the job. And I get it. Like, it's hard to be a newbie, but you also don't need your boss or your training officer or whatever to be your moral compass. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. we address this in one of my other podcasts as well is just kind of that culture of like, he's my superior or he's my boss or she's my boss. You know, there's times to kind of say quiet. Like if my boss does a presentation, I'm like, oh, that wasn't awesome, but I'm not going to say anything. Mm -hmm. But if my boss is sitting on someone's neck for nine minutes, I can say something. Right. And I shouldn't fear repercussions because that's the right thing to do. That guy, that cop does not have the right to decide George Floyd's fate. Mm -hmm. His job is to bring George Floyd into custody and let uh, due process do its thing like we right. have these rules in place for a reason because we don't need civilians or police officers being you know the judge and the, the uh and the prosecutor at the same time like, the fact that that cop had to decide george floyd is is state mm -hmm. gut-wrenching because like i said I don't necessarily see myself there my brother but i see my friends i i all the sudden like like that could be you. Mm -hmm. That could be your mom mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And we're visualizing these people as people because right. we all know people. It's scary. And right. it's scary to think about. And, you and know, again, I don't have the answers, but, you know, there's something's got to change. What you just said is, is the biggest symptom that there is need for drastic change. The fact that three people were afraid to speak up for what was right when there was one, um, it, it tells you that the system is broken, that they feared more for their own profession and their own careers than they did for this person's life. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's the, the, the most blatant symptom of a system that is broken because it, it, there's no way possible. Um, and and there, there are plenty of stories of officers that have been fired for standing up to officers that were you know, committing um, excessive force. Yes. Um, that that shouldn't happen. Should never happen. I guess my quiz is like, you know, he was, I don't want to say he was just sitting on George Floyd's neck, but he was just sitting on George Floyd's neck and it would have been very easy to be like, hey, dude, get up. Like, mm -hmm. or hey, walk it off real quick. I'll, I'll take care of him. You know, you weren't even asking for a whole lot at the end of the day, right? You know, it wasn't like there was a shootout or anything crazy. Like he was just kneeling on his neck and no one was like, hey, dude, get up. Now civilians were, right. I think that's the crazy part about it. And I understand why civilians don't jump in just because you have no idea what the heck could happen. But if enough people are screaming at me to like, get up or this man's gonna die, you know, for whether it's right for the reason that it's right or just your own self-preservation, it's mm -hmm. like, maybe I should get up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I think that's what resonated with people was the brazenness and callousness of it. Yeah. You know, he sat there with his hands in his pocket as if nothing mattered when, you know, for nine minutes, people are pleading with him to get off the guy's neck. And so um, I, I think that's what resonated with people. And, and, and it was, you know, I think also just the week that was had, you know, the week prior was Ahmaud Arbery um, when, when his video leaked. Um, his video would have never come to the light of day unless it leaked. Um, and and the, uh, the three guys that um, were just, uh, they weren't convicted, but they were, I think they were uh, arraigned on charges. Um, oh, with Ahmaud Arbery? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've, they've been, I think they're in custody, but it's going to take yeah. time until there's a trial. Yeah, I think their like first hearing or something was last week. Yeah. But um, they, uh, they were free for almost two months yeah. until that video leaked. Um, and so that was a week prior. That morning was the woman um, that called the police officer on the guy in uh, Central Park. Um, oh, and, the, yeah. And so I think it kind of framed the lens by which that the George Floyd was viewed. Um, I you know, agree. I, because it, it reminded you that the police are used to terrorize Black people. And what she was threatening was exactly what happened to George Floyd. Yeah, with the, with the, the Central Park guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, uh, I think you're right. I think it did frame the lens for George Floyd because a couple of things happened at a very short amount of time 
where mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was like, you know, this could have escalated to George Floyd. And, you know, the Ahmaud Arbery situation is also, I think, another example of departments or police, uh, we'll say police departments, need to completely reform what they're doing because, you know, the that ended up looking for a robbery got like some go ahead or away from like one of the main police officers being like, yeah, just keep an eye on them and stuff like that. So it almost like promoted this weird vigilanteism mm-hmm. that we don't need to be having. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the conversation of we don't need cops to be, you know, the, the people determining the fate of someone like George Floyd, like life or death right? You, we need to take them into custody and let due process happen. But on the same token, we also don't need vigilantes running around. Right. Um, right. That's not what our jobs are to do. And so me personally, I really struggle. I know defund the police does not necessarily mean like completely disband police, but mm-hmm. in some places that is happening. And I think about some of the stuff that's just happened in Denver. And that kind of terrifies me, to be completely honest, is, mm-hmm. you know, if there's not going to be law and Denver hasn't talked about this, but if there isn't going to be some sort of authority, I'm really afraid people will be vigilantes and kind of go really a little crazy with being scared and overprotective of themselves and their property. And so I don't want it to become like as civilians, like us versus them. Right. So we need this like fine line where there's authority that we can trust. And we also have our own rights as, as citizens of this country but I, I don't want to see any uh, vigilantes running around. Like we saw how that worked with Ahmaud Arbery. Right. Like they, they, there's no reason that those guys should have been involved. Zero. No. no. So um, I agree. I, 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 and I don't think defund wants to completely disband I, from, from everything that I've seen. It's, it's kind of allow police to do what they're designed to do, which is, which is um, bring potential criminals into custody. And that's it. You know, they don't need to be um, dealing with mental health issues. They don't need to be dealing with, um, or the only ones dealing with a lot of the, the domestic issues. Um, you know, I, I think they're definitely involved in, in a lot of these cases and should be, um, but they don't necessarily need to be the primary because that's not their their realm of expertise. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know, it's, there's so many different ideas and thoughts. And I think the one thing that everybody agrees on is, it's time for very, very um, deep-rooted change. Yeah, and 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 it's going to vary from department to department and stuff mm-hmm. because they they also vary. But at least for me, this isn't me saying you know I hate cops. That's mm-hmm. not that's not that's not what I'm saying. You know, mm-hmm. again, the cops I know are great, and so they would definitely probably be open for okay, yeah. There's some things that are slipping through the cracks here. Uh, maybe we need to do some self assessment. And like anything else, right? Whether you're a cop, whether you work in, you're a coach, whether you work in the cor- corporate world, like I do, you're always reassessing. You're mm-hmm. always self assessing. Like mm-hmm. the stuff we did at work last year, like the processes we did, right. a lot has changed. And that's just because you learn times change, responsibilities change. And so, you know, even though being a cop in the corporate world are very different, you always have room to self-reflect, analyze what's the good, the bad, the ugly, what needs to change. And also as time changes, as culture changes, as society changes, Mm -hmm. you have to be able to adapt too, because then you do lose credibility. And so they're kind of at, they're at that point now where they have lost credibility, um, and so I'm hoping that it's a, just a wake up call that in general, that there just needs to be an overhaul. I think there needs to be an overhaul with kind of uh, police reform, mm-hmm. governmental reform. And then I think as a society, we need to get back to being together and trying to conquer this together rather than constantly trying to drive a wedge into everything. Mm-hmm. And, and we've created that, I think mostly through social media, but it's, I don't know, it's kind of sad to s- sometimes to see where you see two people and you're like, yeah, you guys are basically fighting for the same thing, but you guys have decided to find like the one thing that differentiates you to completely tear you apart and now you're enemies. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the sports world, you know, I think that's why I like sports so much and I enjoyed playing them because it didn't matter who you were, um, your religious beliefs, your political beliefs, your, your race, whatever, 
you know, you were working towards a tom- common goal. And, and I think in, a, in the United States, that's what we're working towards is equality. And so, yeah, we can say that, oh, laws are equal, but people who practice them don't view it as that, or they use it maliciously, or, mm-hmm. you know, they're still racist people in the world. And we're never going to be able to conquer it, I don't think, just because it's happened since the beginning of time. But hopefully there's a bigger group of us that moves the narrative forward, brings the progress that is in place, mm-hmm. and also resources like yourself and other people that have come onto the show that are willing to, you know, talk about their experiences. And I know it's, it's, it's a very vulnerable experience. Um, it could be traumatic depending on who you are. But I think that's how people like me learn because I, I don't know what it's like to necessarily be afraid of the cops when they drive mm-hmm. by. Mm-hmm. but you do and so that's powerful to hear stuff like that yeah so well um i think that's kind of those are all my thoughts i i don't yeah. I, I don't pretend to know everything about this topic um i don't i don't have all the answers um i just know that and i'm encouraged that there are more conversations going Good. on and and let me ask you this though have your players reached out to you at all like how has this been from kind of a coaching or leadership perspective i've actually had a couple um i've I've had two kids reach out to me um just and and more than anything just questions you know and they're they're both really bright kids you know we had a a long conversation um you know and i I think um some of it is just they don't learn some of those things at school and so you know we kind of talked about you know where some of the frustrations are coming from and Mm -hmm. and both of them independently they said you know well that sounds a lot like an economic issue isn't it and what they didn't understand is there are systems in place that have intentionally held the majority of black people. Well, like redlining. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, redlining in particular, one of the biggest. Um, and, um, and, and so that we don't, we don't teach in school necessarily. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those type of things, the systemic issues. Um, and those, those cause generational harm. Yeah. Um, and so, um, having those conversations, I think, has been helpful. Um, but just kind of educating it, and they've been very respectful and really thoughtful. Their questions were fantastic. Um, and so for me, I, I think my responsibility is to be honest, be open, and kind of divert them to resources. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my, my chosen career is, is as a basketball coach. It is yeah. not a academic, um, you know, it, it is not, um, you know, a history um, buff. I, I've tried to educate myself, but I'm not, I, I don't pretend to know everything at all because I certainly don't. Yeah, um, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think that's my role is to encourage them to be curious, encourage them to ask questions and divert them to resources. Yeah. And I think that's awesome because, you know, I've found myself, because quite frankly, you know, I, I do have black friends, but I don't have a lot, probably mm-hmm. a handful at most. So they are kind of my initial resources. You are included in that. And, you know, sometimes you're afraid to ask the question because you're like, does this seem stupid? Mm -hmm. And everyone I've talked to so far has been very receptive, right? They don't say, you know, that's a ridiculous question or why would you ask that? And Mm -hmm. on my part, I've been trying, I try to be thoughtful in my question, right? So it doesn't come off completely crazy. But, you know, that's how progress is made, right? Having those yeah. conversations. And I, I don't know, your players don't know. And so you're their, their first point of contact. And so from here, it's, you know, teach a man to fish, right? Here are resources, here are things. And, you know, we have, we're lucky now that we live in a world where we have so much information at our fingertips, Bless, blessing and a curse at the same yeah, time. But, but there's no excuse anymore of like, I just never learned about it. I never heard about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, so you know, I appreciate you coming back on and, and re-recording because I think we have recorded our first episode like right after George Floyd's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously the world was flipped upside down. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you, you know, just having this conversation and, and being thoughtful in your responses and, and sharing your personal stories because I know there's things that you haven't told people until recently. Um, and so, you know, great respect to you for sharing those stories and, and being part of the progress and the solution and, you know, coming on to this show and and just showing people that we can have conversations, like we can do Mm -hmm. it. 
And so, um, so yeah, I appreciate you coming on, um, extra pass podcasts with Matt Wilson as well. He has some new episodes dropping where they'll be addressing these issues too, along with talking about basketball. But again, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, I can't wait to watch some of your episodes. Thank you very much. Likewise, I've enjoyed the ones you posted so far. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll chat soon. Sounds good. Yeah. Bye.